You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Alex Chartrand from the University of Cambridge. Her paper was entitled Tories and Thugs, The Impact of 17th Century Struggles Against Irish Banditry on India. Throughout the early modern period, English claims to Irish sovereignty were in large part based on the law. More generally speaking, in the empire as a whole, in the 17th and 18th centuries, the law was upheld by the British both as evidence and as a tool of civilized nations. So essentially what this means is that a civilized nation was one that possessed the law, but was also one that would be able to export it to so-called barbarous societies and therefore use it as a tool of education to raise them up to a certain level of civility themselves. Nonetheless, 17th century Ireland represents an example of a situation in which this English adherence to the law had serious limitations because it was repeatedly subverted or contravened in order to deal with subversive Irish activities. And this is quite important because what it shows is that the law became a tool for regulating social norms and behaviors in the colonies. So I want to take the example of early modern Ireland and things that happened there with the, the English experiences there and how those could later be transposed into the other areas of the empire. So what I'm going to focus on for Ireland is the Tory highway bandit phenomenon of the second half of the 17th century. And this represents a lens through which we can consider the ways in which delinquent behaviors were linked to subversion and were therefore transformed into a challenge not only to the local order, but also to broader English claims of sovereignty in Ireland as a whole. And then moving on to other areas of the empire, we're going to skip a little bit temporarily and go a bit later on uh, in the 18th century. So East India Company attempts to counter the rise of highway banditry known as Dacoiti and Tagi one century later, reveal continuities in the methods for dealing with delinquent colonial behaviors. So this is one quite useful way of thinking of linking the older sort of settlement colonies in the Atlantic with the more recent Asian arena, more commonly known as the Second British Empire. And this is one particular instance in which we can truly say that Ireland did function as a laboratory for empire, because what we see is that it influenced British responses to parallel social, political, and criminal issues later on. Now... Why compare Ireland and India in the first place, though? This would initially probably seem to be a somewhat counterintuitive thing to do. Uh, Ireland is traditionally described as a settlement colony, if as a colony at all, whereas India, throughout this entire period, has traditionally been described as a purely mercantile settlement, although I should probably specify that this has been challenged in the last few decades, and a lot of historians have picked up on earlier elements of sovereignty as well. But I do want to draw uh, early on one big difference between Ireland and perhaps the more obvious settler colony of the North uh, North America, 
So in the Americas, there was, of course, the erroneous assumption that the land was ownerless, and this, of course, influenced the entire approach to the imperial project there. This is not the case, however, in either Ireland or India, where the British were confronted with manifestly settled societies, and so the approach was different uh, in those two places. So the comparison specifically between Ireland and India over this space of time demonstrates the continuities as well as the evolution of imperial thought and the ways in which the exercise of comparison can work across imperial sites, both temporally and geographically. And so for the remainder of this paper, I want to argue that the rise in highway banditry cases corresponds to two crucial points in the consolidation or the assumption of authority in Ireland and India. These represent specific periods in which the state was attempting to define its own position and its sovereign rights in the regions. So both cases then can be considered testing grounds for the development of wider British notions of sovereignty. And these forms of highway banditry were transformed into the so-called states of exception that have been described by social theorists such as George Agamben, Carl Schmidt, and Paul W. Kahn, which in turn allowed the British to uphold the claims of sovereignty that they had already made. And I'll come back to this concept of the state of exception later on. But the first thing that I want to look at is this question of the later 17th century Tory threat. So Toryism then refers to groups of highway bandits that emerged as a significant threat following the 1641 rebellion and which assumed a highly political connotation given their association more generally with Catholicism and more particularly with Jacobitism. So the early Tories then were the product of groups that were affected by the late 16th century Elizabethan settlement and more importantly for my purposes, by the groups that were displaced by the Cromwellian transplantation policies of the 1650s. And when we read descriptions of the early Tories, it becomes clear that an association was quickly made between Toryism on the one hand and this idea of a combined physical and political violence, which shows that distinct connections were made between the idea of criminality, the Gaelic-Irish, and resistance to English rule. And of course, the guerrilla warfare that was undertaken by the Tories as of about the 1650s created an environment of anxiety and of heightened danger for the English in the wake of the highly traumatic rebellion. So the fears of Tories then led to the imposition of a series of increasingly harsh laws against political dissidents and the support of subversive individuals. So early on, for instance, in 1648, a proclamation decreed that the families of Tories who managed to escape justice and potentially the entire districts in which they had operated um, could face imprisonment in the place of such Tories who managed to evade the authorities. And this was carried on to an even more extreme case in 1653 when it was declared that if a Tory were to kill a Protestant and successfully managed to escape justice the authorities would be entitled to go in among the Irish Catholic population in the region, and it is specified that it had to be the Catholic population, and pick four individuals at random who would be held prisoner for four weeks. And if at the end of these four weeks the Tory had not yet submitted himself to justice, those four individuals were to be transported to North America and sentenced to forms of hard labor. So here, of course, there is a suspension of the law in which individuals who have committed no crimes or felonies are being sentenced in year of the actual criminal. 
And this carries on uh, throughout the second portion of the 17th century. And there's a whole series of particularly harsh laws in the 1690s when Toryism is sort of at its height that increasingly encouraged denunciation as well. So collaborators as of this point are deemed to be traitors to the crown as well and face the same forms of punishment as Tories. So you really see here a concerted attempt to break what the English saw as this sort of communal bond of Gaelic Catholicism. As I mentioned, this being because of the fact that Toryism was associated with Catholicism, despite the fact that we know there were Tories who were not Catholics. So thinking now about parallel approaches elsewhere in the empire, there are noticeably similar forms of highway banditry that emerge in the late 18th century Indian context. So I mentioned two terms earlier. Dakoiti refers merely to groups of armed robbers on the highways. There's also the more specific form of tagi. These were supposedly hereditary professional thieves who would ritually strangle their victims prior to robbing them and throwing their bodies into wells. So dacoit bands then are the first form of highway banditry that emerge uh, against the British. And they become increasingly visible and problematic in the 1770s, which is a period of uh, significant social and political instability, especially because of the fact that it followed on a very devastating famine in Bengal in 1769-1770. So the East India Company response to this was quite swift and mirrors the harsh measures that were imposed against the Tories. So the Governor General of Bengal, Warren Hastings, issued a decree as early as 1772 in which he stated that dacoits who were convicted were to be publicly executed in their villages and their families sold into slavery so that they might benefit the greater good of the community. Now, moving beyond the actual sentences imposed for a moment, the wording of this regulation is quite significant because of what it tells us regarding British authority and civilian rights in India at this point in time. So the first thing that comes across is that there is, of course, this idea of guilt by association, as with Tory collaborators. The families of these individuals should have known about the transgressions of the dacoits and have reported them. There's also, of course, the prioritization of social order over individual rights. These individuals, once again, have not committed crimes or felonies, and yet they're to be sold into slavery, which was already gradually becoming a contentious issue elsewhere in the empire. So once again, a series of legal measures are taken against these highway bandits, so against Dacoid in the late 18th century, and then against the rise of the more specific form of Tagi in the early 1800s. And these show two things that I really want to draw your attention to. So first of all, the British clearly saw a close connection between law and order as a way to legitimate their sovereignty in India. But at the same time, there was a breakdown of this adherence to the law when the, thought, when the state was thought to be at risk. So just to give a bit of context for those who are not familiar with India throughout this period, the East India Company nominally adhered to the Muslim legal system that had been put in place by their predecessors, the Mughal emperors. And so they would hold sessions in the Nizamat courts where Muslim legal scholars would issue fatwas or decrees and the British judges would then base their pronouncements on these fatwas. However, as of 1810, the fatwas that were issued in the Nizamat courts were completely disregarded by British judges because it was thought that the punishments awarded were too lenient and therefore did not act as a sufficient deterrent to crime. 
So this completely contravenes the idea I mentioned earlier about the law being used as a tool of education. Here it's being imposed and replacing a law that is supposed to be uh, upheld in India. Now, in India, there is also the ever-expanding definition of the word thug itself, which became quite problematic. It essentially is transformed into an umbrella term for an increasingly large number of different social groups of what the British considered to be social undesirables. And this, in consequence, fed into British assumptions of widespread Indian criminality. So, of course, this is going far beyond uh, the temporal timeline of this conference, but very briefly, it does become a significant issue in the second half of the 19th century because it allowed the British to create this idea in their mind that there existed these so-called criminal castes or tribes. And so portions of the Indian population were inherently um, criminal. And that, of course, has repercussions up until today in Indian society. But in my period, so in the late 18th, early 19th century, the umbrella-like quality of this term did have its uses for the British because it allowed the East India Company officials to extend their authority into neighboring princely states where they had no claims to sovereignty whatsoever through the justification that they were attempting to counter the thug menace which the princely states had been unable to do themselves. So having looked quickly at the specificities of each of these forms of highway banditry, I want to take a step back now and look at the ways in which we can consider these um, through the wider frame of the British Empire and how experiences in one place could influence experiences in the other. So following on the arguments of the social theorist Walter Benjamin, non-state sanctioned violence represented a powerful threat to a state's sovereign claims because the ability to impose the law was thought to excuse me was thought to be a reflection of the state's actual power and so in consequence the inability to counter extra legal violence that was carried out by bandits suggested that both the Irish and Indian administrations did not have the ability to either control the violence in their regions or to protect colonial subjects now, speaking about the persistence of Toryism in particular in the second half of the 17th century, Sean Connolly has argued that the state was essentially attempting to impose its view of the law, but was unable to do so because of the weak nature of its authority. And it's no coincidence, then, that it's only in the decades following the Battle of the Boyne in 1690 that Toryism as a political threat began to die down. So there are pockets of resistance that carry on, particularly in Ulster. But by and large, the Tory threat was thought to have been dealt with by about the 1720s. And the very interesting thing about trying to contextualize Ireland into the wider British Empire is we can see parallels with other areas. The same kind of conditions are occurring in East India Company-administered regions of Bengal a century later. So once again, just very brief context. Um, the East India Company won a significant battle against the ruler of Bengal in 1757 and was awarded the right to raise revenue settlements in the name of the Mughal Emperor. So for the first about 12 years uh, after 1757, they leave the administration of Bengal to the indigenous officials who were already in position. But as of about the Bengal famine, so roughly 1770, they then begin to take a much more active interest in the administration of the region, and they try to extend their power in larger territories of Bengal, which of course is what causes the social and political instability 
on top of the famine that had occurred at the beginning of the decade. And so the rise in Dakoiti and then in Togi essentially occurred in a period in which the East India Company was attempting to assume formal administrative control, but had not yet been able to do so. So subversive behaviors then, such as Toryism and Dakoiti Togi, challenged British claims to sovereignty in both places. And the nature of these challenges demanded the circumvention of the law in order to maintain the position of assumed authority that they had taken on for themselves. And so I want to argue that the methods for dealing with banditry actually show discrete instances of the creation of sovereignty in both places. And these forms of banditry then were transformed into the states of exception that I've mentioned earlier. So the state of exception is essentially one in which the sovereign body creates a state of crisis or urgency through the process of identifying behaviors that transgressed social norms and therefore required the complete suspension of the law within that particular territory. So essentially what we're talking about here is the idea that the state was manufacturing its authority through the process of elaborating such norms of acceptable and unacceptable forms of behavior. And I also want to extend Carl Schmidt's particular idea about linking sovereignty in the law to argue that the highway banditry cases demonstrate how the general concept of sovereignty is a construct that had to be generated through such states of exception, but then also had to be upheld by perpetuating such moments of crisis, because it's through the perpetuation of these moments of crisis that the state could continuously reassert its authority over in colonial, colo, excuse me, colonized subjects. And I think that this goes a certain way towards explaining the British obsession on the one hand with putting an end to Toryism, Tagi Dakoiti, but its equal reluctance to clearly define any of these concepts. So it's this idea that they fear banditry because of the challenge that are presented to the state. But at the same time, Instances such as these cases of banditry allowed them, first of all, to enforce their authority over colonized subjects, and the continued presence of these forms of banditry continued to allow them to reassert this authority. So beginning to think about wrapping things up then, the time lapse between the Tory and Tuggy phenomena is not only representative of the transition between the early modern and the modern periods, it's also a transition in the ways of thinking about the law, about the nature of state authority, and about sovereignty in general. And yet at the same time, we see the same approaches being undertaken in both places, despite the fact that it's over 100 years apart. And so the colonies then represent one area in which ideas regarding concepts of sovereignty merged together and could be put to the test. So both in Ireland and in India, as elsewhere, the British created categories of exceptions such as highway banditry, which then became standard forms that they sought out among colonial subjects in order, as I mentioned, to assert their authority and then to reassert it. So in one sense, the colonies represent a state of exception that became a normalized state. And Toryism and Tagi represent two particular cases of states of exception that mirrored one another and of the challenges to the legal structures that arose outside of them. Now, the increasingly harsh legal measures that were imposed by the British, first in Ireland and then in India, indicate that their authority had not yet been firmly established. But the countermeasures do reveal a sense of their increasing power. And so the attempts that they made to define these forms of banditry, however vaguely they left them, 
and to assign values to them does reveal an increased and growing confidence in each administration's ability to understand, to categorize, and finally to contain colonial subjects. And so these are two examples of situations in which the British attempted to establish the parameters of the law in their colonies. And this involved two things. So A, defining and regulating acceptable social norms, but by, uh, in consequence also B, identifying behaviors which fell outside of these norms, meaning states of exception that required a certain suspension of the law. And so the similar approaches to these forms of highway banditry, despite a 100-year difference, suggest continuities between imperial endeavors that transcended the temporal and spatial divisions of empire. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.